Good morning, everyone. We're so very happy to be back here. Of course, we're down here in southern Texas, and I'm sure you've heard what we've been going through in the last week, but by the grace of God and by the wonder of Randy, um, all of the pipes have been fixed and the snow is out of the way, and we are here to worship the Lord and to share with you this morning. But before we begin, I have an announcement to make, and um, I, I wish I could have given you this announcement earlier, but for many reasons, this is the first time I'm able to share it with you. The announcement is very simple, that on February the 27th, which is a week ago, uh, a week from here, um, I shall be married. Um, I'm being married to a lady in Houston. Her name is Cheryl, and you'll be meeting her as the weeks go by. She's coming to live here in, in Bandera. Um, she is quite an amazing lady. For the last 30-some years, she has worked in the women's prisons in South Texas, first as a chaplain, and now she has her own independent ministry going in and talking to the women of the grace of God, um, and with special emphasis on going into death row. And some of her stories are even more amazing than my Africa stories. The, the beasts that she deals with live on two legs, and um, yet the grace of God is great in her life. And so we are to be married next Saturday, the 27th, and I, I ask your prayers for us, and I believe that she is going to be a great asset to the ministry. And so that's my announcement, and I'll be back in a minute to... Um, share the word of God, but I wanted to get that said and done before the rest of the service begins. And so now, Andrew, it's yours. Well, good morning. How do you follow that, right? <laughs> well, it's good to see everybody. It really is uh, this this last week that we, we missed. Uh, um, it's so good to be back. We're glad to see everyone's faces. We're glad to be back together. And uh, this morning I'm going to read a portion of Psalm 25. It says, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindnesses, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be unto the ages of ages. Father, we thank you. We give you thanks that once again we can come together and celebrate this company of people, we who share bread, 
we who feed on the very bread of life. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this celebration of this announcement. And we thank you for your blessing upon Bishop Malcolm going forward in this relationship. And now, Father, speak to us through Bishop Malcolm, by your Holy Spirit. And as your Spirit enlivens the word he speaks, we thank you that you are opening the eyes of our understanding. And Holy Spirit, you are opening our ears. And we are able to hear with your understanding all that you have to share with us this morning. We thank you for it, all in the name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And what I want to share with you this morning, I, I, I believe that there will be quite a number of us who maybe have, you've never heard this before. Um, it's not new. I didn't make it up last night. Uh, but this is uh, straight out of the first centuries of the church. This is what the believers that came out from the New Testament believed. And tragically, a lot of this has been lost to our Western world. But there's a great renewal going on, and it's beginning to re-emerge. <clears throat> and I want to share, and so ask the Holy Spirit to... Be light in your mind that he shall give eyes to your understanding to see and to rejoice because I'm telling you this, this is the gospel. And I want to take as a basis from John chapter 4 and we know that as the woman of the well or the woman of Samaria and I'm just going to read um, from one verse or two, um, I think most of you know the story. In verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water that is in the well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him, in him, inside of him, a well of water springing up like an artesian well and it says to eternal life a better translation would be defining eternal life and so he says that he will give water living water and it will be in the person but not simply slaking some thirst inside the water itself will become like an artesian well gushing until it fills the entire person. And that, he said, defines eternal life. Okay, that's where we're going. Um, let me quickly tell you the story because the story is a vital context to this. As you begin the chapter, or just previous to the chapter, Jesus was in a place called Ainon, and that means a place of springs. I think that's significant in itself. He probably had that on his mind. Um, he, he was in the place of springs, and he is going to now head north. He's down in what we know as Judea, and he's going way north to what we know as the Galilee. In the middle is Samaria. And so if you're in Judea, then somehow you've got to navigate your way through Samaria to get to the Galilee. 
and he's in Anon, which is down here in Judea, and they are going to walk. Obviously, there's no other means of transportation. They're going to walk to Galilee, up into the Galilee, which um, they stop here at the place called Sychar, which is in the middle of Samaria, which means they had been walking approximately a day and a half. It's about 40 miles from Ainan to Saika. And a good, healthy person who lived in a day when all you did was walk, that would be about a day and a half journey. And he's weary, and he sits on the well side. Now, Samaritans, I, I don't think there's a way of describing the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews. Just let's say they hated each other, and that's really putting it mildly. They, they had this ongoing hatred between the Jews in the south and the Jews in the north, and here in the middle, the hated Samaritans. And it was a mutual hating. It was based on where the Samaritans came from, they, they were replaced there centuries before, and, and so they'd intermarried with whatever Jews were there. And, and so they're a mongrel people, you know, a bit of everything. They, they are a mixed race. And for that, the Jews hated them. But then it got into the religion. They accepted the first five books of the Bible, which in the Hebrew are called the Torah, but they didn't accept the rest of the Old Testament. So they just had the first five books and claimed some sort of relationship to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Um, but then it wasn't simply that. They added to that all the pagan religions that they brought with them when they were all mixed up together. Um, and, and so the, the Jews hated them for that, that, that you don't even know our God you have a pseudo-temple on Mount Gerizim, and you talk about Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, but you don't know our God. You've got a mixed-up understanding of God. They hated them for that. And so there were, well, the hatred broke physical, and almost every family who lived anywhere close to Samaria would have stories of fistfights, if they met a Samaritan, they'd stone them on the street. It was ugly. And so when I say from the first verse here that Jesus must needs go through Samaria, that's not exactly true. Because if you were a Jew and you've got to get to the Galilee or vice versa, you don't want to go through Samaria. That's the last place on earth you want to go. And so the Jews who had strong feelings about this would cross over the River Jordan and go up the side, or they'd go way down by the seashore and go up the side. Very few really wanted to go right through the middle of Samaria. You never knew how you'd come out the other side. Well, when it says he must, and I say no, he didn't. He could have gone the other routes. The must there, the must, the driving, he must go through Samaria. I believe you're tapping in there to the must or the necessity of God the Father 
who in and through Jesus, the Son of God, the must there is to find this woman. The must, the driving must is echoed in that uh, Luke 15 where the shepherd must go into the wilderness to find the sheep. The woman must go into the dirt to find the coin. And the father must run to the son and hug him. That's the must of love, the necessity that this woman and all the Samaritans around her are included. And to a Jew, that's, well, we won't even go there. To them, when Messiah comes, the Samaritans will probably be the first ones he'll kill. There's, and here, when the Messiah is come, he must He's driven by love to go to this woman. And so, 40, 50 miles, trudging through more like desert country, they come, and it's midday, hot midday. It's desert-like country, and they are weary. I, I, I could stop there. I'm not going to, but the marvel of it is God became flesh, and he is so one of us, it becomes weary, he's tired from a journey, he's hungry, and the disciples go into the city to try and find some food. Jesus, in that weariness, sits on the side of the well. Now, I've been to that well, and I'm sure many of you have too. Um, the Jacob's well, it's still there, and uh, only it, it's now a lot deeper than it was in those days because sand is built up. But um, you, you would sit on the edge of the well. There would be steps going down to where the water bubbled up, and then the, you would cup it out. And, and Jesus sits there, sort of an alcove in the shade on the side of the well, but he's got nothing to draw the water with. And the disciples have gone to get food, and he sits there, and across the desert, the, the city would not be far away, maybe half a mile, and she's coming across the desert under the midday sun. Now, I want you to get this woman. I want you to meet her. She's alone, and that is the very first thing that hits you. If you know anything about these third world countries, <clears throat> When you go to the well, which everybody had to do at least once a day, more probably two times a day, and that was always the woman who would go carrying the water pots on their shoulder or even on their head, and, and, and they would come in groups. Yeah, go, going to the well was the gossip center of the area. I mean, when you go to the well, well, I'm not just going to get water. I'm going to visit with everybody else in town. Everybody's there coming and going and getting their water. I say that because it would normally be at 6 o'clock in the morning before the sun came out. And the next time you'd see anybody at the well would be around 6 o'clock at night as the sun's going down. You didn't go out into that desert and start drawing water under the burning sun. This woman is alone and she's coming under the blazing noonday sun to get water it is very significant um just hold it in mind she's a samaritan obviously it says so 
and she identifies herself very strongly as a woman, a Samaritan woman, which would mean to say, I'm a Samaritan, I'm not a Jew. They really define themselves as Samaritans more in what they weren't as to what they are. I'm not a Jew. And as a woman, I'm not a man. And I'm coming across this desert with the worldview of a Samaritan. That is the politics of Samaria. Everything that made this terrible clash between the two peoples, that's who she is. And she believes, as much as any Samaritan did, in the God of her fathers and her forefathers and that temple on Mount Gerizim, which was not too far away. Yeah, that's who she is, up to a point. But she's a victim. Now, I want to emphasize this. She was a victim of five husbands who had divorced her. I've looked in the commentaries you know, I always do. I don't know why I do sometimes. Um, if you want to really see what religion is saying about these things, you'll soon pick it up in most commentaries. And this woman is defined as immoral. Oh boy, everything comes out now. This immoral woman who has had five husbands and she's now living with a guy, the sex. And she's depicted as this woman that is selling herself. I wish some of these people would understand the Middle East. I wish they'd understand the culture of the Bible. You see, women didn't divorce. Men did. And it, it, it is another world. It's not like our world at all. They divorced over nothing. We have records, actual records of divorces because the wife burned the toast. And that was enough to throw her out on the street. Um, Her housekeeping was not good enough. There was dust left in the corner. Get rid of her. She was looked upon as chattel. She's a no thing. She's a woman. Do you remember the Pharisees? Now, of course, the Samaritans weren't Pharisees, but... Pharisees, they would begin their day. I I think I've told you this before. They would get out of bed, raise their right hand and say, Oh God, I thank you. I am not a woman and I am not a dog. I am a man. That's how they began their prayer life. It's That's the culture. And so when this woman has been divorced five times, Don't come down on her like a ton of bricks and say, what an immoral woman. No, this woman is an abused woman. And it was in a day when a woman couldn't get a job. Of course, there were no jobs for women. Women only had two things in life. That was to care for their husband's well-being, cook and clean the house and produce babies. There's no other reason for a woman being here in the culture of that day. So if a husband throws her out on the street, which literally he would do, many times not even serving her divorce, just get out of here, then what is she to do? She now becomes helpless. And for quite a time, no other man will look at her because if she's been thrown out, who wants to take that one in? There's something wrong with her. She's not enough as a woman. And... Five times she's been through that. 
five times demeaned, five times trampled underfoot and told to get out. Not a good enough cook, not a good enough housekeeper, can't please me, you're not enough for me. You're a reject. You're a failure as a woman. You can't perform as a woman. Now she's working on number six. Though at this point there is a sense of hopelessness because again you do not have in those days what we have today, a culture of simply living together. Don't have that. So if she's living with a guy who is not her husband yet, that that's big. That means on two sides, they really, is it, is it worth it? Is it worth it for number six to throw me out? Is it worth it to even try and have a commitment that will be gone with a desert wind? This lady is abused. She's a broken woman. She's been thrown out as worthless. She's been used and then found rejectable. Get out of here. And her face, you, you know you can read faces. I think most of us can. You, you, you could read the face of this woman. The pain is etched into the face etched into her eyes of suspicion and fear. It reflects all the bitter arguments that are by that simple statement she'd had five husbands. Uh, you can only imagine the, the, the screaming and the beatings that had gone behind that, the cruel words and the lies and the masks as she as well as the man living a life of pretense. And I say again, she's now run out of hope. Who on earth, after number five, is going to say number six will be different? <laughs> no, five times. And, and and you know what this is, and, and certainly in that culture, but it's universal. Uh, you, you get people coming together, but they come together believing that this other person, the man or the woman, is going to meet their needs. Let that sink in. This, this woman, five times over, had believed that a man could meet her needs. The trouble was the man was empty and believed she would meet his needs. You've got two ticks and they're both blood-sucking on a dog, but the dog isn't there. Uh, and they're sucking life out of each other. And and, and the whole thing falls apart. And that, that's what's happened here. Um you see, if, if relationship with another human being at any level or a relationship with any human institution could provide the satisfaction that this woman, we all, are looking for, but they can't. No other human being can satisfy the needs of my spirit. My spirit scream out my spirit is like the desert she walked on no other human being can fix that and if you get married thinking that this other person is going to meet that need get ready for a similar life story this this is this doesn't work uh we we go how many have gone to religious institutions churches uh how many divorces of churches have you gone through 
How many times did you think this church is going to meet my need? And of course they didn't. In fact, they looked at you as an asset now to meet some of their needs. And you end up sitting there, desert dry, dried out like a prune. That's what this woman was. She comes across that desert with another meaningless day. And she comes, note, at noontime because she's getting sick and tired of the way the women look at her and the women talk about her. And and you know women, and God bless every woman, but get a gang together and she's the reject. She's been kicked out. They're going to make hay out of that one. And so there comes a point where I'm sick and tired of it. I'll rather go at noontime under the blistering sun and nobody's going to stare at me and talk behind their hands about me. I'm tired of being non-acceptable. I'm tired of being non-inclusive. I'm tired of being left out. So she comes, and as she comes, sitting on the well, she sees someone who's obviously a Jew. I don't know if you realize that. But when God became flesh, he became human. He didn't become sort of universal, neutral human. He joined the humans that are called Jews. That tied him into the entire Old Testament and all the promises of the Old Testament. He was obviously a Jew. She recognized him as a Jew. That was not altogether unusual because this well was right there as you're coming up from Judea to the Galilee. It's pretty much in the middle. And many a traveler who had decided to come that direct route would be sitting on that well site. And she looks, he's a Jew, he's a traveler. But immediately her guard is up. Remember, she doesn't trust a man as far as she can see one now. But also a Jew? <laughs> It's, and again, I'd like to talk about it. I'm not going to, though. That Jesus, God, became flesh so one of us that he is weary, hungry, thirsty, and sitting in the shade of a well alcove, waiting for the disciples to come back with food, and he asks a favor. I don't know if this means anything to you, but God in the flesh is asking a favor of a woman saying, would you please give me a a cup of water? Because you've come with a jug, and if you get water, you could let me have a sip of it. It's amazing. Asking a favor for one of his creatures. But her response is very rough. Um, it doesn't really come through in our English translations, but there's a sneer to her voice. Uh, what She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? Uh, she's bristling. And there, there's the idea there in in the language that it was written in that it's not only ask of me it's getting it for free that is you're thirsty 
I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew, and you're asking me for a freebie? If you want some water, pay for it. Um, that, that's the adage. She's coming. She's not nice. She's coming. She's got, a, she's got her boxing gloves on before she starts. She doesn't want a relationship. She doesn't want a conversation. She wants to get her water and out of here. Nothing to do with this guy. And, and of course, what she's saying there, how is it that you, a Jew, but not only a Jew, but a man, you're a man, again how can we comprehend this in today's world but uh, shall I say a holy man a rabbi but then anybody who has respectability would never speak to a woman in public he would you they wouldn't even speak to their wives in public you're a man and a woman is chattel, and you would not speak to a woman in front of a public audience. What are you doing? You're a man. I'm a woman, and you're talking to me? Not only so, I'm a Samaritan. You're a dirty Jew. What are you doing talking to me? But then, oh, it gets worse. Because, you see, if you were a Jew then your rules of religion forbade you to drink or eat from anything that belonged to a pagan. So you, if, if it's their cup, if this plate was in a pagan house and it had food, you couldn't eat the food because that plate was from a pagan. She is a Samaritan and she's got a jug, yeah, and there's going to be water in it. And he's saying, I want a drink. She says, what are you talking about? I know you Jews. You wouldn't touch our stuff. <clears throat> hmm. she, she's setting up for a fight here. She's ready. She's setting distance. She's separation and the hatred. I'm a different race. We've got different political views. I don't agree with you on any point of your stupid religion. Let me get my water and get out of here. That's her attitude. And Jesus has been raised in that culture. But he is so above it. He does not, how can I say this? He doesn't descend to being merely a Jew. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Um, in, in life, if we've discovered the life of God in Christ, we do not descend to being merely Americans. We, we, we are higher than that. Not in the sense of looking down on others, but we've seen a life and a love that transcends all the hatred between human beings, and he does not answer her. He refuses to come down and fight. He won't. He rose above being. Nor does he respond to her as a Samaritan. That's that's the amazing part. He's not going to deal with her as she wants to deal with him. She wants to fight. He won't fight. She despises him. He doesn't despise back. Rather... He acts as he truly is. And that is that he is God the Son who has taken our humanity 
in order to bring to pass in this woman's life the love intention of the Father since before creation. How can I put it? Many of us have been taught that Jesus was here because Adam fell. Have you, have you ever been taught that, you know? So, you know, Adam was plan A. He, everything was invested in Adam. A- and Adam royally screwed it up, hardly before he began. A- and so God's mad at him. I'm going to punish him. But Jesus somehow steps in, and Jesus is the footnote. So Adam was plan A, and he completely messed it up. So now Jesus comes because the father's getting really upset. And so Jesus comes to quieten him down and take the place of Adam and pay for his sin and make everything okay. And and that's what some of us were raised with as the gospel. No, please. Do you, Adam wasn't the beginning. Adam wasn't plan A. Jesus was always plan A. It says in Ephesians, before the foundation of the world, and, and in maybe a better translation, before the fall of the world, before Adam did anything, it says in Ephesians 1, the purpose, the intention, the will, the reason for creation was that we would be included into the family of the Holy Trinity. No, no, Jesus is there. He's here looking at this woman and he's on that mission. He's coming from before the foundation of the world to tell this woman that she's included into the family of God. It makes a whole difference. She, She is the lost coin, but she doesn't know it. She's ignorant. She, she is valued by God who will not stoop down to the pettiness of a Samaritan and a Jew, but sees her valued of great worth. And she's ignorant. She's totally ignorant. She ha- doesn't have a clue who she is. Doesn't have a clue the reason she's here. But Jesus is God on a treasure hunt. And he's finding his way into her darkness to bring her words of light and the love of God. And I like the way he said it. He said, if you really knew who I was, wow, that's a statement. (laughs) The biggest if, if you knew who I really was, (laughs) could, could you ever comprehend that this Jew sitting on the well is really the creator of the cosmos? Could could you believe he is God come looking for you? If you knew who I really was. He said, if you knew that, you would be the one asking me for the living water. And then he he goes on. This water that you're going to get, it's good for an hour or two. Then you're thirsty again, back you come, back you come. It's almost a hint that we haven't got there yet, but a hint, you know, five times you've come and, and still you're thirsty, still you're thirsty. It didn't work. And he said, this, this drink that I will give will be an artesian well within you and, and it will rise and fill your life and it will define for you eternal life. 
Now, that, that's really what this whole thing is about. What is eternal life? I, I've come from my own background, my own religious tribe, and um, I tell you what, I was raised to believe that eternal life was that if you said this prayer, then you would go to heaven when you die and you'd live forever. That that always was a bit, you know, off <clears throat> to me. Um, I mean, that doesn't excite me, quite frankly. Because uh, so you say this prayer, and then what do you do until you die? That, that's, and yet the New Testament seems to be full of what you do now. In fact, the more I read the New Testament, the less it says about what we call heaven. Um, and, and you say live forever. What, what do you mean? Have an apartment or something and, you know, cook and clean and just keep on living and keep on living and keep on living? Sounds pretty boring to me. Well, that's the truth. Just live forever. Um I mean, have you ever thought about this? What is eternal life? And of course, I think um, it, it's that word eternal that gets all that there. And that's, uh, that's not the interpretation of, of the word. The, the people of the Bible never understood what eternity. They, that was a, they couldn't understand it. That's very much our Western way of thinking, this abstract idea of foreverness. What it is, it's, it's called the life of the ages. So the age upon age upon age upon age unbeginning and the age upon age upon age unending, it's the life of God. And, and so this thing we call eternal life is the life of God. And he is saying that this life, the life of God, will be inside of you and it will have an energy all of its own to be like an artesian well to fill every part of your human existence. So much so you'd never thirst again. There would never be that ache inside that emptiness. That's eternal life. Well, then what is the life of God? Do, Do you understand me? When we say the life of God, we just don't mean he lives and he lives and he lives and he lives and he lives. Again, that would be very boring. Um, What is? And that's the uniqueness of the message of Jesus, that he introduced us to the life of God by revealing to us that God, one God, is three persons. And we come to this all through our Christian faith, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that means that God is in himself relationship, that Father and Son relate, and the Spirit relates. You have In the very heart of what we understand of God, we have relationship, we have fellowship, we have communion. In fact, it says just two chapters back in John chapter 1, 
He introduces this because John is forever telling us about this everlasting life, eternal life. So he defines it right at the very beginning. And he said that God the Son, that he calls the Word, that we know as Jesus, he said in our Bibles, he says he is with God. He's with the Father. And again, I'm sorry to keep saying this, but that's a bad translation. It's with, yes it is, it is with, but with is not enough. I am with you all. I'm with you now. But that word, which is pros in the Greek language, it means not just with, but turned intentionally toward. It means with face to face. And it means closeness. It means eyeball to eyeball. Some have even translated it cheek to cheek. You are in such a relationship that the Father looks into the Father, the Son. The Son looks into the Father. The Spirit looks in the with, face to face. Now, now think about that. That's the life of God, this relationship. And that's why it says God is love. For face-to-face means love. So you see, within the God that Jesus revealed, there is no loneliness. That's impossible. For the Father is ever consumed with the Son who is consumed with the Father, the Spirit ever with the Father and the Son. You, you, You have actually the idea of a dance that each is contributing, each is receiving. There's no loneliness. In fact, when I say face-to-face, think about it. That Jesus from unbeginning is face-to-face with the Father. What does it mean? If I am face-to-face with you, I'm looking straight into your eyes. That's the the big picture. Well, if I'm looking straight into your eyes, it means, number one, there's no shame. If you you notice, if there's any shame in your life, you are incapable of looking someone in the eye. Have you you noticed that? That There's a downward look. To say face-to-face, eye-to-eye, is saying absolutely no shame, no secrets, no hiding. Got nothing to hide. It means I totally accept you and you totally accept me. And we live in this complete no hiding, no shaming. It means no separation. There's nothing between us. We're eye to eye. It means a union of two persons who utterly trust each other. There's nothing between Nothing to hide. I'll say it again. There are no secrets. You see, every relationship is defined. Its limits are defined by your secrets. If you have a secret, that's as far as a relationship goes. And of course, most people have a whole garbage can full of secrets, which means that their fellowship and relationship is a very shallow thing. But eye to eye means I have no secrets. I have nothing to hide. I give myself in my entirety to you as the other gives themselves in entirety to me. Hmm. The eyes are the 
windows of the soul, eye to eye. He says that's our God. That's our God. The place of absolute assurance, the place of absolute acceptance. No inferiority. Because I've heard some give the idea that, you know, God the Father, he's the mean bad guy. And Jesus is this one who sort of comes in later and he's, he's less, than, less than the Father. No, you can't be less than if you're eye to eye. Eye to eye means on the same level. It means face to face. That's what it is. No, no groveling. Total acceptance as the same as. And that's no demeaning, no put down. There's a bold assurance about face-to-face. I look. We have maybe a negative tone when we say, I'm in your face. But you think about that in terms of love. It it means I've got nothing to hide. I know you love me. I know I'm totally accepted. I can be in your face. I can speak freely and boldly. There's no fear. You ever thought about that? There is no possibility of fear in God's life. For God is love. And the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. And wherever there is the love of God, John tells us it casts out all fear. It cannot exist. Eye to eye, face to face, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid because I know you love me. I know that you're giving yourself entirely to me. There is no possibility of fear. This is friendship taken to the nth degree. Now, this is interesting, I think, that this word, face-to-face, that describes the very life of God in the language of the Bible, it's used to describe the bride and the groom. When the bride and the groom come together and they are face to face and union is, they use this word. They use this word. That, that, that is complete giving one to another. Okay, it would also be used as the baby. You, you, you hold a baby in your arms and the face of the baby turns toward the mother, the father, and, and that, that's this word. It means trust. It means that all that the Father is, He gives to the Son. All the Son is, He gives to the Father. And the Spirit gives. And this, this well, that, that produces unspeakable joy. Well, we're talking of God, so there's no limits here to anything I've just said. And that means joy. I, I, you see. We, we were raised with a miserable God. When, when people say holy, they usually mean something close to a funeral. It's holy. You know. God is the ultimate party pooper. Yes. Anything that's good, he's against it. Huh. Have you ever thought... Maybe if you haven't traveled, you won't have noticed it. But if you go around the world, every culture reflects this. Anyone who didn't know this would begin to think about it. 
I, I, I go, I've been to almost every continent in the world, and wherever you go, you find people come together. It's spontaneous. They don't have a book of rules. I mean, here in Texas, well, round a fire, bunch of cowboys. You, you look even on college campus, groups, people come together. Go to tribes in Africa, and the big thing, especially as the night draws on, the tribe comes together. And there's laughter, and there's slapping of the back, and there's telling of stories, and there's the relating of our history as a people. And and I've gone from country to country to country, and each in its own culture is doing that. And you begin to think there must be a genesis. There must be a womb somewhere that we all came out of that is this. Have you ever thought that our God is the beginning and the ultimate of around a campfire? Do you realize what the Bible teaches is that holiness is laughter that echoes across the cosmos? It's not that miserable God that says you can't do this, you can't do that. God has a smile as big as the universe and laughter and joy. He sings. Bible says so. Have you met God yet? <laughs> Many people are beginning to wonder, who is this God I've been hanging out with? Well, you wouldn't hang out with him, would you? That, that's another thing. People say, I'm going to heaven for eternity. You really want to be with him forever? Um, serious. I'm very serious now. The, the, the sort of God people believe in, I would not like to spend eternity with him. He's not fun. Um, he, he's continually irritated with us. He created us to be annoyed with us. Well, that's another thing. But joy, this relationship face-to-face -face is one of joy. The baby laughs in his mother's arms. The bride and the groom dance together face-to-face. -face. No secrets. A family where there's no secrets is a place of extreme joy and extreme peace. Huh. Yeah, there's no arguments. Impossible. There's no secrets. And this, this is another hour, but I'll throw it in. This is righteousness. You ever heard that? You've heard of that, haven't you? Righteousness. And people think, you know, you've kept all the rules. And now here we are, I'm unrighteous. Most miserable man on the block, but I am righteous. That you, that's not even the meaning of the word. Righteousness means a right relationship. Righteousness is when two persons are face to face and they are ec ecstatic over their relationship together. That's the meaning, dictionary meaning of the word righteous. It's got nothing to do with behavior. It's to do with relationship that produces behavior. But it's relationship. And then, of course, very soon after that, it goes on to say not only face-to-face, -face, but actually inside each other without losing each other. So father's inside the son, but he never loses himself in the son. 
He's still the Father. And the Father is inside the Son, but the Son never loses Himself and so on. That, says John chapter 1, is life. That's life. To be face to face with God and to dance with Him in the joy and the peace that arise from that love. John 1 says that's life. That's being alive. But then it says that this one, God the Son, who is smack in the middle of that relationship, face to face with his Father, that one becomes human. And I mean human. Just where we are. Screwed up, in the dark, don't even know who we are, have no clue what God planned for us. That's human. Or as the New Testament calls it, flesh. That's flesh. Screwed up humans. And it says that God, the Son, in that relationship became flesh. He joined us in our darkness. But in joining us in our darkness, he never stopped in the relationship with his Father face to face. So what does that mean? He brings this... unbegun, cosmic relationship of love and acceptance and joy and peace. He brings it inside our... He becomes human without ever ceasing to be in relationship with his Father. Why? Because it was God the Father and Son and Spirit's plan from the very beginning. We should be in that family. So God comes and joins human without ever leaving that relationship. And he talks all through the Gospel of John, especially he talks about he and the Father. They're they're living out this relationship. But I mean, can you get this? And that's what I'm trying to say. This, this, This man sitting weary on the well and saying, I'm thirsty. He's right where we're at, but he's brought into that the life of God. So the life of God, this relationship of unbounded love, he brings it right into authentic human existence. Inside a family, he grows up in a family in a third world country living this out with his father, but bringing it now to the dinner table. He he lives this in a carpenter shop with all the sawdust and with people upset with their bills and he lives this. He's human, but he's living God. Face to face. So he's face to face with us while at the same time face to face with the Father. He's joined us in our darkness, in our death, in our screwed up empty lives. And he said, I've got a gift for you. And the gift is to discover who you really are and to discover what was always planned for you 
that you join with us and I'm the one come here to take you into this relationship. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. God's never mad at you. He never has been mad at you. He's always wanted you face to face. And so now God the Son comes to fulfill the heart of the Holy Trinity and bring us face to face with the Father. And that's eternal life. That, that's what, see, it's God's life. Love, God's love is God's life. There's no separation, no hiding. Separation brings fear and death. And so in John 17, 3, it says, now this is eternal life. So we're going to get a definition now. This is eternal life. That they may know, and the word know there is that intimate word of heart knowing, not knowing about. It is heart, it's face to face. He says, this is eternal life, that they may have this heart knowledge of you, the Father, the only true God, and of Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's it. And the word also know there, it's not a finality. That, that is, you don't say, well, now I know it. No. It's, it's ongoing. You're, you're, you're knowing and you're knowing and you're knowing. It's the adventure of discovering a knowing. And so he says eternal life is this endless adventure of coming in my daily earthly experience to discover this love, this life, this laughter that fills the cosmos, this unearthly peace of God. It's all beyond my explanation, but he says, drink this water, and it's not just going to sit there, it's going to gush, and it would define that's eternal life, like being washed, cleansed, your thirst forever slaked. That's it, that's it, that's what it is. Life, life is infinitely more than being alive. You might have noticed that. This poor woman was alive, but she wasn't aware of life. It's actually, Jesus is quoting here from the Old Testament. Do you remember? It's another message, really, but I'll throw it in quickly. You know Ezekiel's river? Do you remember Ezekiel's river? He says that it, this river had a life of its own, and it was a river of life. And he said it. When he got into the river, it was up to his ankles, but it wasn't long before it was up to his knees. And he said, then I couldn't stand anymore. I I was swimming. And he said, I was swimming inside of life. I I was swimming in aliveness. And then he says, I got on the bank and I, I looked at it. And he said, wherever the river went, there was life. He said, you know, dead trees suddenly came to life and where there was just desert, it became grassland and salt stinking water became fresh and clean. River of life. Now he says that river's inside of you. That's what he was offering this woman. And having offered it, 
he brings up the five husbands. That, I, I've, I've read this probably, yeah, probably a thousand times. I, why did he do that? They're just having this conversation. He says there's this water that's going to change your life. And then he says, go, go and call your husband. And she, she says, I, I don't have it. He said, I know you had five husbands and the one you're living with is not your husband. What, what's he do that for? Because he doesn't do anything with it. He doesn't go anywhere with it. He doesn't start talking about it. He just announces it. You ever thought about that, you see? God, I, the commentators, good old religious people, they say Jesus was condemning her and making her convicted of her immorality and sin. No, he didn't. Read it for goodness sake. It, doesn't, it didn't do it. He just casually mentioned it. Have you ever thought about this? What would he do it for? Because he was not condemning her. doesn't in any way condemn her. He just announces it. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with isn't your husband. I'll tell you what I think he was doing. He was letting her know this is not a shallow conversation. I have got inside your darkness. I know exactly where you are. I know the pain and the abuse and the horror of what you've gone through. I know the garbage can inside where you've stuffed five ex-husbands. And you said, don't talk about that. I don't want to go there. I can only hope this one's going to... He says, come on, come on. I'm inside your garbage can. I know all the five husbands. I know what you've been through. And I know what you're going through. And I want you to know that this life of God inside of you takes that into consideration. This isn't something that you're going to have on top of that and pretend it's not there. No, drag it out. Tip the garbage can on the kitchen floor. It's all there. I know all about it. I'm inside your darkness and I love you. And I have come from the very heart of the Father to give you this gift of our own life that will cleanse away all the pain and the abuse and bring you into the love of God. Do, do, do you see what I mean? What we stuff in garbage cans and pretend is not there because it's too painful to look at. My shame, my secrets, my barriers where I hide. You're looking for God, he lives in the garbage can. That's the point. I'm serious. God became flesh. He didn't come to play a religious game and say, well, let's keep the garbage can, you know. No. He says, I'll come in the garbage can and that's where I'm going to release the water of life. I'm going to come to the point of your shame and you're going to lift your head and look me straight in the eye and know I accept you and I love you and you're released from all of that. I'm going to turn on all the lights and therefore you're going to see now clearly instead of wandering in the darkness. I, I, I have no other answer to that. He wants her to know well, all I'm saying here is not religious gobbledygook. I am there, lady, right where you are. 
that you don't want anybody to know and that's why you came at midday when no one can talk about it. Well, I already know about it. I came looking for you. I, I know all about it. And I'm there. I'm there. I'm not embarrassed by it. I'm not ashamed of you, lady. I don't share the opinion of the village. I don't share the verdict of your five husbands. I've come to tell you the life of God would be like a cleansing artesian well that's going to make you into a new woman with no more shame because God's life started in the middle of your garbage, in the middle of your secrets. That's where it is. It's not you're playing this religious game up here on the surface and hope no one goes in the basement. No, God starts in the basement. He meets her on her territory, right in the middle of her rejection and her apparent failure, but not to condemn. It's inside the darkness because that's where he turns on the light. She, there's more to this story, but there's not more time. So by the time it's finished, she just dismisses it. At least that's what it looks like. She said, okay, okay, you know. When Messiah comes, he's got all the answers. He'll, he'll tell us everything, won't he? It's a nice way to finish a religious conversation. And Jesus does something he never... You go through the whole life of Jesus, not once does he say who he is. Never. Right? I mean, he, you go through, he never says, I'm the Messiah. No, he calls himself the son of man. And to this woman, this Samaritan woman, this shame-filled, secret-bound woman, he said, I am, that's the name of God, I am he who speaks to you. He said, I am the Messiah. I think that's pretty much the only person he ever told straight out that he was Messiah except when he's before Annas in, in the trial. But it's amazing to me. And in that moment, how can I put it? Something happened. I say, you, you read this and read it and reread it. When he said, I am, I'm the one, I am the Messiah. Something happened, and it wasn't intellectual. It, it isn't that suddenly she is now a theologian and she understands even 1% of what I've said this morning. Um, she saw at a heart level. You know what I mean. At least a lot of you do. Um, your, your heart... That, that other gut-level part of you is streets ahead of your brain. You know. Your brain says, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Let, let's work this out. Well, I've got to get you know a few scripture texts here. Your heart says, I know, I know. And she knew. And in that moment, she took sides with Jesus against the verdict of the city. 
She took sides with Jesus against the opinion of all the women of the city. She took sides against her own self to believe what Jesus said. And that all happened in split seconds. I suppose she might have known of the existence of Isaiah 61, which was the most famous um, scripture concerning Messiah, that he comes to heal the brokenhearted. I don't know if she did. All I do know is, and it says so specifically, not, not sort of an accidental thing. It says she left her water pot. And the word left there in the original language means left it with intention. She deliberately left her water pot and ran into the city and shouted to everybody, come and see a man who has told me everything I've ever done. She left her water pot. Is that because she's telling in a symbolic way, I understand what you said? You said if I get water in this water pot, I'll have to come back again. And you gave me water, I'll never need to come back, so I leave my water pot. It It was an intention. She didn't forget it. No, she deliberately left it. She got it. The life of God released into her darkness and secrets and shame. And when she goes back, she doesn't know how to say it. She blunders into the city and all she can say is, come and see a man. Come and see a man. Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Of course, why does she bring that up? Because this man not only told her everything she'd ever done, but right in the middle of that mess had brought the waters of life that cleansed her and brought her into the life of God. That's the gospel that I meet not only here, but all through the New Testament. It's a far cry from what we hear much of the gospel. See, did you notice she didn't invite him into her life? Did you notice that? He invited himself. In fact, really, if you read it a few times, you realize he's inviting her into his life. It's See, people are forever trying to invite Jesus properly. That's why, you know, many have come from churches where people get saved every week um, because they never have this unearthly assurance. They never see the eyes of God the Father just looking right through them and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. You're included, you're accepted. No, they don't know that because they've been told that they have to say the right prayer and they've got to really work at it because God doesn't want you You've got to convince him you're wantable. No, that's not the God we worship. This God says, I'm inside. I'm talking to you right out of your garbage can. I, I'm inside. I mean, I, I'm inviting you to realize I'm in your life. I'm here and I am the waters of life. There's nothing she did. She couldn't do anything. Don't be daft. How can you do anything? 
This is God's initiative and God does it. He opens our eyes to realize that he has brought us into the life of God. He became human, one with us, introducing us to the face-to-face with the Father. And when he became human, that meant we humans are brought over to his side. This woman, well, actually church history tells us that this lady became quite a famous evangelist. She's mentioned in church history and to the point where finally they martyred her for her faith and they did it by throwing her down a well. Um, She was totally, radically changed. And I share that with all of us And I know that all of us are basically, as far as I I know, we're all under the banner of Christians. But Christianity in the West is not really a joyous matter. It's a stressful, anxiety-ridden thing, trying to convince God he ought to like us. And we're never sure that we pull it off. Whereas the gospel is the good news that from before your creation, he planned to join you into his family. And Jesus came in order to put his arms around us and include us into that face-to-face, eye-to-eye relationship, which is eternal life. And I trust that rings a bell somewhere inside of you. Because it means, you see, you don't have to do something. It means open your eyes, wake up, and realize you're right in the middle of this. Because this is where he has brought you. And the Holy Spirit awakens us to know where he's brought us. So wake up. You're smack in the middle of the waters of life. Eternal life is yours and in relationship with Jesus you are face to face with the Father and you are part of the smile that is bigger than the cosmos. He lifts up the light of his countenance and shines upon you. Now the blessing of God who is almighty love and life open our eyes to see our inclusion, to see him alive and light in the middle of our darkness. We receive it. We give you thanks, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.